Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. This episode, we're going to be taking a look at some tarantula. I was going to say common tarantula ailments, but I don't want to use that word because I don't think the majority of these are all that common, and I think a lot of them are preventable. So we're going to be looking at some ailments and some things you can do, in some cases, preventative measures. I think I kind of covered some of these during the course of the podcast, but I do get a lot of questions uh, during the course of the year about what to do from this situation. My spider's having issues here. I think it has DKS going through all the different things that could possibly wrong, be wrong with a spider. And so I figured it'd be a good uh, opportunity to kind of go cover some of the more, again, I hate to use the word common, but the ones that pop up more often than not and basically address them all in one place. So it's kind of like one-stop shopping. If you have an issue, pop in the podcast, go to the point you need to listen to and find out what to do for them. And I will say that since the last time I've covered a couple of these, I have more information. I've done more research. I've found better preventative or measures to fix and alleviate the issues. So it'll allow us to kind of update those as well. So to kick it off, we're going to go to probably the most common one, the one I see most often when people approach me there's something wrong with my spider. I'm not sure what the deal is. We get pictures of the enclosure. I often get a spider that looks like it's in, either in a full death curl or a, in the starts of a death curl, the beginnings of a death curl. And then we'll get pictures of the enclosure and it's a bone dry enclosure for a moisture dependent species or it's a sling and what looks like fluffy cocoa fiber substrate with no moisture in it. We're talking, of course, about dehydration. I think that's probably one of the biggest killers of spiders out there, especially with folks that are new to the hobby that I think what happens a lot of times, and you see this with ones where people will read a spider is from an arid region. And they and I remember this confusion when I got into the hobby. This one killed me as well because you'd hear, all right, this spider is from a region where they don't get a lot of rainfall. It's a desert region, blah, 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 blah. And you get the little sling and you're like, all right, well, it doesn't need any moisture. And you drop the sling in something bone dry. And next thing you know, it, you have a dead sling. I think I told the story before. When I got a Fonapelma annex years ago, I got a little baby sling. I did some research on it. Apparently, my research was not that great because it said that they were they like it dry. Don't you know? Don't worry about the moisture levels. So I didn't really do much with the moisture level. Every once in a while, I drip a little water down the side of the enclosure, give it a little moist spot, but it wasn't burrowing. It wasn't eating. It was sitting in the corner. And eventually, after some time, I found it in a death curl. I probably killed it. It was my fault because I kept the the poor thing much too dry. So the next one I got, I set up in a similar fashion, which was dumb because I should have realized something was up there, but I kind of attributed to maybe it was just a week sling and immediately noticed same type of behavior. So this time I took a paintbrush, a very small paintbrush, made a furrow down between the side of the dram vial and the substrate and sprayed a little water in, moistened down that lower level. And as I've told the story many, many times before, the next day I came in, that thing had tunneled all the way down to the bottom, found itself a nice burrow in that moist area and ate immediately. So looking, at, I didn't know it at the time when the first one died, but then looking back at it, I immediately felt horribly guilty because I realized that was 100% on me. And I hear this a lot with species that people get where they keep them bone dry. It's the winter time, the room's dry, the substrate's dry, and all of a sudden you have a dead spider. So I, it, I've also seen, you know, back in the day, they'd be, you'd, I'd be watching YouTube videos and people would be like, oh, mysterious death. And you see like a piece of Litheria species that's kept in a bone dry enclosure with no water that's in a death curl in the corner of the enclosure. And like, I don't know what happened to it. Well, it seems to me that your spider died because it didn't have enough moisture. It's, it basically dehydrated. It died of thirst, sadly. So, that is one of the more common ailments I encounter with folks, and I, I've had a lot of great situations where people have been like, I don't know what's going on. It's sitting in the corner. It looks like it's a death curl. Sometimes it's slings. Sometimes it's older specimens, juveniles, adults, and I'm like, all right, moisten down the side of the substrate, see what happens, and then I get the email back. Oh, my God, it went over immediately and started drinking. Or I put a water dish in. You know, And the thing is with the water dish, as far as when they're already dehydrated, already in the death curl, already losing mobility. Because what happens is, remember, they're like hydraulics. And if they lose the hydro part of that, they can't move their legs, stretch their legs out. They can't walk. They become basically stationary. They curl into themselves. If they've gotten to that point where they can barely move, dropping the water dish in is not going to work. And unfortunately, I've had situations where people have been like, look, at, I think my spider was dehydrated. I put a water dish in. It died two days later. Well, if it can't move because it's too dehydrated, dehydrated, it's not going to be able to get to that water dish to drink, nor would I take a dehydrated spider and drop it into a water dish. That's a bad situation as well. So at that point, there's a couple things you can do 
to ensure that they're able to rehydrate. This is where the tarantula ICU comes in. And again, I'm not a huge fan of it because I think what happens is it ends up being our last, last ditch effort for any ailment. My spider is unresponsive. It doesn't look right. I'm putting it in an ICU. My tarantula had a problem molting. I'm dropping in ICU. It's like our, our catch-all. And I get it. I really, really do get it. But there are situations where I think it can be beneficial. One reason an ICU can be beneficial, and as we've already discussed, when a tarantula becomes dehydrated enough that they have a hard time moving around, if you do the old ICU trick, which is where you have a separate kind of barren plastic container, usually what you do is you line the bottom with some paper towels, you moisten down the paper towels a bit, you put the spider in there, it takes away all the extra stuff. You know, it can be stressful for the spider because you're pulling it out of its home into the air, but the reason why it can work for dehydrated spiders is because that paper towel being nice and moist, you put them down, their mouth parts are on the paper towel, and they can drink from the paper towel. They can pull moisture right out of that. They don't have to move much to be able to do that. So that's, I think, why some people experience success with that type of setup with the ICU. It's funny because I was talking to Andy Anderson, the veterinarian, that Andy, if you're listening, we do kind of get you on this. We keep, it's been like three years of us trying to go back and forth to, to get him on. But he mentioned the fact that when somebody is dehydrated, if you're out running all day in 90 degree heat and you become dehydrated, you don't jump in the shower to rehydrate. It doesn't work that way. So that's where the ICU thing kind of gets silly because we think, oh, we're just going to drop it in a moist environment with some moist paper towels and that's going to magically rehydrate. No, it doesn't work that way. And Andy was talking in his end, if you bring it to a veterinarian, they can give it water via syringe. I don't know exactly how that works. And again, we'd have to get them on there and that would be, you know, that would have to be something you can get it in immediately and have a veterinarian that knows what they're doing. But the other thing you can do to make sure they get water, and I've had folks do this and it works out well, is you flip the spider onto its back and you use a pipette or just something to carefully drip some water on its mouth parts until you see it start getting its movement back. Years ago, I had a spider that came to me. It was shipped in the mail. I bought it from somebody privately. It wasn't a dealer. And it was a larger specimen and they had shipped it in the deli cup lined with paper towels, whatever, but there was no moisture in it whatsoever. I don't know how this thing was kept. It didn't look in great shape when I got it. It had gotten caught in the mail for an extra couple days. It had been hot. So when I got the spider out, it was in a death curl. It looked terrible. And so I ended up setting up the ICU enclosure, so to speak. I put the paper towels in, but I put it on its back and I used a little pipette and I dribbled some water in its mouth, came back, dribbled some more water in its mouth. I noticed the water was disappearing, whether it was evaporating or drinking it, wasn't sure, kept doing it. And then little by little, I saw its legs start stretching, gave it a little more water. Next thing I know it, it's on the paper towel, drinking from the paper towel. So that can work. That is a trick. And I have heard people that have had some success for it. And you'll know when they're dehydrated, some of the signs to look for, they're very lethargic. They're curled in, the legs start to curl in. Sometimes it's not a full death curl yet. Sometimes it's just they're starting to curl in a bit. In severe cases, their abdomens look deflated, which that's a really, that's a sign that it's pretty far along where they've actually losing mass to their abdomens and they're kind of shriveling up. And that's when you really got to act. And you'll know when they start turning around, I found it takes a few days for them to really hit their stride and become healthy again. So it's not like, I've heard people say like it's almost instantaneous. They drink and they're back up. I've found that you'll see definite, uh, definite improvement if they start drinking, if that's the issue, but it takes a little while for them to be fully 100%. So it's also, I think the dehydration thing, very, very avoidable. Do the research. And again, I threw myself under the bus here. We've all been there. We've all had situations where we've done that. And I do think it's, it's mostly with folks. They're just getting into the hobby that haven't understood the whole sling factor that slings do need some moisture. Even if they come from more arid places, that's usually the case. Sometimes it's a situation, I hate to say, where people just screw up. They forget to add moisture to enclosure or they have a super hot day. I know it's been summertime and I've received a lot of emails from folks that have had some issues with, we're having places now, they're having heat waves. They've never had heat waves like this before. Our friends in UK, I will say even in Connecticut, we just had one heck of a heat wave. I mean, last summer we got up pretty easy. We've had some a severe, a severe drought. 90 degree weather, a lot of folks don't have the ability to cool down their tarantula room when it hits the 90s. So you're going to have situations like that. So being extra diligent during those situations, making sure they have the water dishes. I can't say it enough. I know I harp on it, but it's such a simple way of making sure that your spiders have hydration. I know a couple days in here, it hit 87, 88 degrees. I came up and you could count at least a dozen spiders out drinking out of their water dishes. What does that tell you? If those water dishes weren't there, 
you've got a thirsty, potentially dehydrated spider. So easy preventive measures. Again, do your research. Make sure your slings, if they're ones that need that moisture, make sure they have a little moisture on the bottom. You know, I know everybody poo-poos the misting and stuff, but it can be a nice way before bedtime to, if you miss some of the leaves and stuff and the enclosures, they will come out and drink. I had my Caribbean Versicolor female the other day that right before bedtime, I went up and I just sprayed around her enclosure and I turned off the lights and I came back up because I had forgotten something. I looked and there she was drinking right off the glass. So know that they can get, I mean, think about it in the wild, especially slings and stuff. Some of the ones are under, you know, moist, dew covered grass and foliage. They can get it from that. So it's about timing. If you do it at night before the lights go off, that's your best spot of them being able to come out and get some before it evaporates. Cause the problem is it evaporates very, very quickly. That's why people are like misting is not the best way to hydrate your spider. It's not moist substrate, water dishes, way to go, but it can be an extra aid, but just make sure they have the moisture level they need and make sure that when you're doing your research, even if it says this animal comes from an arid region, look, dig a little more closely. If you find it's a burrowing species, guess what? You can take that arid stuff and throw it right away because they're burrowing to a point where they're getting moist substrate and that needs to be taken into consideration. So probably the most popular thing I get hit with is the dehydration. The next one I get every once in a while, I've only actually encountered this twice in my career and lucky the first time I did it, it went really well. Second time I did it, I had more information. It worked really great. So you're, I'll just set up the scenario. You're feeding your tarantulas. You take one of your tarantulas out. You go to feed it. And you notice when you look closely that there's all these little white dots around its clarissera. You examine its home a little more closely. And you realize there's all these little white dots swarming all around. You have mites. I remember when I first got into hobby, mites was one of the things I most feared. Because I've heard all these horror stories about these tarantulas covered in mites and the mites are draining them dry and here's the deal let's put this out there first mites are harmless they're unsightly they can be gross when you see them on a spider but the majority of mites out there are completely harmless they're usually grain mites they usually come in off of the food items you feed them think about a lot of the creatures that we keep roaches, crickets, mealworms, and soupworms especially. That's where I ran into it. You keep them, you give them grain-type products, you get the grain mites, you drop a prey item in, you don't realize there's some mites on the prey item. Next thing you know it, the mites get out, they find some stuff to feed off of. Now, the thing to keep in mind is they're scavengers. So when you drop them into a tarantula enclosure, if there's enough moisture, because they do need some moisture, they can't dry out too much, if there are boluses around, prey items, even if you've got substrate that could have some stuff in it, that's all stuff that they feed off of. In many ways, they're similar to springtails that we also keep, purposely keep with tarantulas to feed and scavenge. The problem is with the springtails, I've never seen springtails on the actual spiders. They don't hitch a ride. What happens with the mites, and this is where it freaks people out, is after things start drying up or after they run out of prey items and they start exploding, they have to find a better spot to get food. So what they end up doing is attaching themselves. They kind of latch onto, bite onto, doesn't damage the spider, but bite onto the spider, often around the clarissera, because think about it. Now you're sitting there around the mouth parts of the spider, around the mouth of the spider, while the spider's eating, and they're able to feed off of that. So they basically got a food source. So people get confused with that, and they think parasitic, it's eating, it's attached to the spider, it's sucking it's hemolymph, it's killing my spider, it's draining. No, not the case. But it does look unsightly, it does freak us out. So what can you do when you have a situation like this? Well, the first time I had a situation like this, I was very fortunate because it was with a juvenile that really wasn't, didn't need an excess of moisture. I looked in, there was a corner where it looked like there had been a bolus or something that I hadn't caught and they were kind of swarming around that. So what I did is I removed the bolus, I scooped out the area around it. I left the substrate kind of dry for a little bit, kept a little water dish in there for a while. Then I plucked the water dish out and without, within a reasonable amount of time, a couple of weeks, I didn't see any more and that was it. Second time I got them a little worse is because I was using mealworms. I had a mealworm colony. It was over the course of a winter time. And I believe what happened is they came in off of the meal. It's the most logical explanation for it. Came in off the mealworms. I had one where it was a pretty good, I wouldn't go full explosion, but it was definitely worse than the last one. But again, it was an older species and I was kind of due for a rehousing anyway, and I didn't see many on the spider. So what I ended up doing is I, and this is the easiest way if you have a full explosion. Now, how do you, we said they're harmless, and they are harmless, but if you get a full, like a full-on explosion where they're all over, it can stress out the tarantulas. I've had people send me images of tarantulas kind of doing the tiptoe walk because they're freaked out because they're all over the place. It does start to irritate the tarantulas. That's when it can become an issue. So in a situation like that, the best thing to do, in my opinion, is 
A, clean out all the substrate. You never know what's in there depending on what you're using. They could be feeding off of something that's in that substrate. If it's a moisture-dependent species or a species you need to keep some moisture in there, you're not going to be able to just let the thing dry out. So best thing to do, take the spider out, put it in a different container for a minute. Clean out all the substrate. Clean the whole enclosure. I like to use water, just warm water and white vinegar, and then I rinse it out really well to kind of clean the whole thing out. If you have cork bark and want to reuse the cork bark, you can boil it and make sure you kill anything that's hiding in the cork bark. Same thing with plants. Again, you want to make sure that you're not putting, you're trying to get rid of as many of the explosion as possible. Then you're going to redo the enclosure, put the spider back in. And there may be some, there may be a situation where they're on the actual animal. Then what you want to do is, A, one thing you can do is keep the bottom layers moist and the top layers dry. And that will keep, they need that moisture. So they're not going to, they're not going to dig down to find it. So they're going to be kind of trapped. They're not going to be able to live on the surface. And then what you do is put something that's decaying, either a, you can use a dead cricket, a dead roach that has started to kind of decay. I know it sounds nasty, but this is the trick. Or some spoiled vegetables or fruits. You put them in a corner and what's going to happen is they're going to detect that there is a food source there. They're going to migrate off of the spider onto the food stuff in the corner. And then what you do is after a day or so, scoop that out. You should see all the stuff on it. Again, you got to get them while they're on it. They're going to feed on it for a bit. Scoop it out, do it again. Do it again for a course of maybe a week or so. And what you should see is the you will eradicate the majority. You will get rid of the explosion. You've gotten rid of most of them when you tossed out the substrate. You've cleaned everything out. You've gotten the ones off the spider. You should be in better shape then. I can tell you with the second explosion I had, I did the rehousing, put the spider in there. I thought I saw some on the spider. I did this trick for about a week and they were gone. That was it. That was the end of the thing. I did do the trick where I put a layer of moist substrate in the bottom, covered it up with dry so there was nothing really moist at the top. I did give the spider a water dish when it was out of its enclosure for a bit, but I took the water dish out of the enclosure for a week while I was treating it. And again, they were all gone. So that's the big thing to know is, and here's the deal. Talk about preventative. They, they shouldn't become a problem unless they explode. And honestly, they, if they explode, it means there's probably something going on in the enclosure. It's not quite right. It means if they exploded, they found enough to eat so that they didn't just die off. Because a lot of times what happens is we get these things and we don't know it. They come in. I'm sure that other enclosures that I had, because I was using the same mealworms to feed a lot of spiders. And sometimes you pick up the mealworms, they got some of that dust on them. Who knows what's on them? You drop them in there. Other ones, there was no explosion. So it means those enclosures were either drier or cleaner. In the case of the one where I did get the a little bit of an explosion with them, it was a situation where it was an enclosure that I was planning on rehousing the spider anyway. It was a, it had been in there for a while. It was probably had some hidden stuff in there that I didn't real about, realize, older boluses, parts, whatever it may be. The, they found enough to feed on. So it's one of those deals where if your maintenance is on point with most of them, it shouldn't blow up. But if it does blow up, they're not that difficult to get rid of. The other thing you can do, another trick, and again, we talked about springtails earlier, is if you have an explosions of them and you have moisture-dependent species, you want to get rid of them, buy a colony of springtails, drop those springtails in. They're going to thrive in the same conditions. They're going to compete with the food, and they're eventually going to outcompete or should outcompete the mites. And then all you're going to have is the springtails, which we like. But it's kind of a funny thing because we we treat the mites. I think the difference between springtails and mites and why we don't purposely put mites in our enclosures for cleanup is the fact that they can, when they get that situation where things start to dry out, they can mob the spire, they can explode, and it can cause some stress. But it is normally not a situation where you need to panic. I can't tell you how many people I get, Tom, help emergency, and it's a mite situation. And I get it because I would have freaked out too. So it's not a judgmental thing. I'm not like, come on, come down. Don't you know any better? I get it. That's what we hear. Nobody wants to go in there and see their spider seemingly infested with a bunch of mites. That is not a good look regardless. So the good news is it's not something to go crazy about. It's not something to freak out about. And we do have techniques now and strategies to combat it when they do get out of control. And before I forget, the other thing I would, if you're doing a situation where you've had an explosion, you've rehoused a spider, you've given it a new enclosure, new substrate, you've got the stuff in the corner. The other thing is lay off feeding the spider for a bit. As long as the spider isn't, you know, you can wait a couple weeks or so. Don't introduce anything that they could feed off of in that time period. So that was the other thing. When I rehoused this one, I did lay off feeding it for a bit. Guys, remember, they can go quite a while without eating. I'm assuming if there's an explosion in a situation like this, the spider probably has eaten a couple times after its last molt. It's going to be completely fine if you lay off the food for a bit. 
And if you're worried about hydration, I know I said I kept the water dish out. You can also put the water dish in at night, take it out in the morning would be another way to do it. Just make sure there isn't a constant source of hydration there or do it every other, every three nights or so, something like that. You just don't want to make, you want to keep the condition such that you don't get that explosion again. But again, if you clean the spider out and you do this trick, you should get rid of all of them. Now, the predatory mites, do they exist, or the parasitic mites, I don't know, I hope I didn't call them predatory mites early. If I did, I'm correcting myself. Predatory mites are actually good. I've used them to get rid of those pesky gnats before, but parasitic mites, do they exist? Yes. They're not very well studied. They're not very common. And honestly, the only way you should get parasitic mites is if they're introduced into your collection through a wild caught specimen. This is why, you know, when you get wild caught, all bets are off with wild caught tarantulas in terms of parasites and ailments. I've seen some crazy stuff over the years, you know, worms erupting out of abdomens and stuff from wild caught ones. They could come with parasitic mites. That's a totally different ballgame. So know that another reason why we want to try to avoid wild caught specimens at all cost but honestly there should be that if you're in the united states europe in a place where there's a well-established hobby this shouldn't be a worry so if you get those mites don't freak out don't spaz don't think that your whole collection is going to get destroyed you're probably okay just use some of these tips and tricks here to kind of alleviate the issue the next one i tend to get contacted about quite a bit you see a lot of it out there and we're talking about DKS or dyskinetic syndrome, which is not an ailment. It's not an ailment unto itself. It's symptoms that can be caused, we, we suspect, by a variety of different things. Although we're starting to kind of think we're getting a better idea of what can cause this. Now, I first experienced this many years ago, I believe back in 2013, 2014, where I had a spider that I went in and went to check on it. And basically with DKS, it's a, it's a very profound issue with their movement. It looks like there's some type of neurological dysfunction where their movements are very spastic, uncoordinated. They're, they almost has this weird, jittery stop motion appearance to it. It's very distinct. It's like they can't control their limbs. So they all their limbs try to move at the same time. They jitter. They can't move in a straight line. It's really pathetic to see. And I've had a lot of folks over the years send me videos of ones they think have it. And it hasn't been it. When you've seen it, you know. I think that's the thing. And I've had people show me pictures of their spiders that are moving kind of weird. And then later on they go, oh, it had DKS, but it's fine now. I don't think it was DKS. When you see true DKS, it is it is very profound, very recognizable. And from my personal experience and experiences of others who have contacted me where it looks like a legitimate DKS symptoms, it's almost always fatal. Once you see it, the spider's already too far gone. In a lot of cases, they're dead within a day or two. In my case, it was about 48 hours before I saw something weird to when the spider was dead. They can't eat. They can't drink. It's, it's horrific to see. So I think, unfortunately, because there can be many causes to this, it's difficult to come up with the treatment. I've, I've heard different treatments out there. I know one of them involved heating the spiders to like 95 degrees, 85, 95 degrees, and that supposedly helped. I, I struggle with that only because I think it depends on what exactly caused it. I'm not sure why the heat would help them, but maybe it jacks up their metabolism, passes whatever poison was in them. But it's I have heard that one. I don't know. I, I'm not totally sold on it as far as a viable option. I guess if you have a spider that you believe has it and is dying, then it's a last ditch effort than what the heck. But I also, again, think a lot of cases where you see this, it's not true DKS. It's something else. So anyway, let's talk about a couple of the causes of DKS or what we think might cause it. It's basically the biggest cause, I think, or the biggest suspected cause is some type of poisoning. And poisoning, we're talking about pesticides, Paints. I've heard situations of people experiencing DKS after somebody painted a room and there was poor circulation, so the fumes got in there. Bleach. Bleach can be a po can poison tarantulas. I've heard of at least two different instances that involve a spider that when we had DKS symptoms, it looked like legit DKS symptoms, and it ended up there was bleach somehow involved. Folks that live, I, we have a lot of issues, and I feel terrible for this, with folks that are renting apartments, and they find out after the fact that somebody is sprayed for some type of pest, and that pesticide gets in there, and we have issues. I know that with, I suspect that with my situation, what happened was we used to use a type of flea and tick medication. It was the type that you'd put down their spines. It was topical. It went on, on their skin, like you rubbed down their spine, got into their hair and everything, and it soaked into their skin, and that was the deterrent for the fleas and ticks. And the problem was I pet my dogs, cuddle with my dogs constantly. I think I probably had that stuff on my hands. Amazingly, I can remember 
feeding that spider. And at one point I dropped a cricket and I picked up the cricket with my bare hand. I threw it in there and I'm thinking what happened is I transferred some of that stuff probably over. And like we stopped using that stuff shortly afterwards and I started wearing gloves when I was feeding just in case. But I'm thinking that's what had happened. I had unfortunately inadvertently poisoned my poor spider. And that's the only thing I never had it again. Once we stopped using it, it wasn't an issue. But I can say that in a lot of the situations where I've heard, especially when they have, there's terrible situations where there's multiple spiders effective. We've had ones where it's like only spiders on one shelf. And then they start realizing, oh, that shelf is right next to a doorway. The next room, somebody was doing painting or doing the, the bleach thing, I think was a situation where somebody's cleaning the whole room out with bleach and the door was left open. So all the ones that were close to that ended up showing signs of it. So it does sound like that can be a cause of it. I've heard people have suspected mold, bacteria. The problem is we don't know the you know how many different things that can cause it. It's Again, it's symptoms. When you get symptoms, then you have to figure out what the cause is. But it does seem like more often than not, the situations that I'm privy to, you can track it to some type of poisoning from chemicals or pesticides. So it's unfortunate. It doesn't seem to happen all that much. And again, I have seen other people have sent me a lot of videos over the course of the years. Do you think this is DCAS? And a lot of times it's, in some cases, it's a spider that's kind of in a stress curl because they're sitting there blowing on it or shaking the container trying to show that it's having spastic movements. And when it moves, it looks weird because it's just kind of adjusting itself. It's I've seen a lot of videos where it doesn't look like DKS. And again, I've seen a lot of videos where they think it's DKS. It doesn't look like DKS to me. And then I get a video a week later or an email a week later saying, hey, my spider's perfectly fine now. So it probably wasn't DKS in the first place. But Again, unfortunately, prevention, be careful with the chemicals. Paint is one people don't think about. When you paint a house and you're doing the painting, there are fumes from that, whether it be from the actual paint, from the paint thinner. I know I did my dining room at my old house several years back and the dining room is connected to the tarantula room and I was freaking out that I was going to get paint fumes in that tarantula room because they were adjacent to each other so I had a fan I had all the windows in the dining room and I had fans sucking all the stuff out making sure that we didn't get any fumes in the house it's very important to consider that and it can be tricky sometimes especially for people that don't own their own homes that's where a lot of folks I, I find run into issues with it where they freak out because somebody's doing something or in the, the apartment or the next door apartment and there's fumes in it can freak us out but DKS, not as common as people think. I do think under many circumstances, it's preventable. I do also believe that it's one of those situations that unfortunately, a lot of times we don't realize what we did to cause it until we start troubleshooting after the spider already shows signs. And that's been the case in many instances where folks have contacted me where it does look like it's a case of DKS. They've been able to go, you know what? This happened this day. Somebody sprayed this day. This happened this day. They were able to kind of pinpoint this is probably where that contaminant was introduced that caused the issues. So again, until more studies done, and I don't know when anybody or how anybody would even study this, We, we I do believe we have a better grasp now on the things that can lead to it and so I do feel like there are a lot of stuff we can do to prevent it happening but sometimes every once in a while you get that case with a spider we had one recently uh the beginning of the summer where somebody hit me up it looked like DKS and they couldn't we went through all the lists of things that could happen we couldn't find anything so fortunately that's why it's so scary for us is not only is it sometimes difficult to even understand what caused it but there's not a lot of treatments again you can try that heat thing jack up the heat for half the day whatever, maybe that'll work. I would just be afraid at that point, you have a spider that's already discombobulated. They can't drink, they can't eat, so it could be dehydrated and now you're going to put it under extreme heat. Uh, but I guess at that point, you can try anything. I just feel bad frying my spider. So DKS, something most of us hopefully won't ever experience. I've, knock on wood, I've experienced one out of hundreds of spiders, so not a very common ailment, but one that sometimes people run into and one that, you know, again, can cause sleepless nights. The next one seems to be one that is popping up a lot more recently, and I don't think it's because it's happening more often. I think we're starting to recognize more what it is, which is good because anytime we can, we always talk about unexplained deaths. Anytime we can look at a situation and go, I know what this is. Now we have something we can focus on to possibly prevent it. So I'm talking about impaction. This is one that, again, I get a lot of people that will contact me. I'm so afraid that my spider is impacted. Now, I want to say this again, like DKS. This doesn't seem to be that prevalent. I do think we're hearing more about it because, again, I think people are recognizing more. We're diagnosing it more. But impaction is basically when the spider somehow is unable to vacate its bowels, for lack of a better term, it's unable to poop, 
and the feces gets built up inside. Basically, a horrific example of extreme constipation, and eventually the spider ends up dying. And what ends up happening in these cases, one of the ways we can diagnose it after the fact, and one of the reasons I was able to figure out this is what happened to my spider, and then I had to, I didn't recognize it until after the fact. So it wasn't like I went, that spider's impacted. There was a point where I was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong here, is when, I, when the spider basically got to the point where it was unresponsive, it looked like it was dying, I took it out, noticed that the anus seemed to be plugged. I ended up getting the, the plug. It was a hard plug of feces out of the anus, and the amount of excrement that came out of that spider was horrific it was awful it was just so much poop just terrible terrible situation and the spider for a bit looked like it was going to do okay it became a little more responsive and it died the next day so what happened what are the signs of impaction and i i am afraid to put these out there because what happens is people when they first get their spiders and they a lot of times we sense something might not be right or we think there might not be something right and we start seeing things that might not necessarily be there or we read one similar symptom of a certain ailment and they immediately go, oh, that's it. And they don't look for other signs. I think with a lot of these, you have to look for several different signs. So for the impaction, we have dragging of the butt. They look like they're trying to web, but there's no web coming out. They have spinnerets frozen or one immobile. So in the case of mine, one of the spinnerets was like stuck straight up and the other one was kind of curled in. Hanging Later terms, they're hanging around the water dishes a lot, staying around the water dishes, sometimes putting their abdomens in the water dish. Not pooping, that's a tough one. And I, I hate saying that one because what happens is a lot of times we don't know when they go to the bathroom. We don't necessarily see it, especially with terrestrials. Arboreals are nice enough to go out there and spray it all over the side of the enclosure. So we go, oh, there we go. But with terrestrials, it can be different. You don't necessarily see it because it kind of blends in with the substrate because it's that watery, whitish type poo. Swollen abdomen, I've had one, mine that got it had molted recently. She had ate several times and her abdomen was very swollen for only having a couple meals caked chalky stool around the anal vent. A lot of times you will actually see they have a messy butt, for lack of a better term. There is actually white chalky stool caked on there. I've seen really bad cases where it's all over the anal vent, up into the area where the spinnerets are, just a big mess. So those are some of the signs of it. And they'll start acting very lethargic, weird. Some of them will come out of it. They're burrowing species. They will come out of their burrows and start kind of hovering around the water dishes. And probably the biggest issue with the impaction is that even though the tarantula is impacted and technically sick and ill, they continue to eat and drink normally, giving little indication that something's wrong. So what ends up happening is by the time you recognize some of these symptoms, it's already too late. They've massed so much of it inside them. There's so much waste buildup that now that you're seeing them rub their butts on stuff and not web and everything, it's almost already too late. So this happened with my Eulathus parvulus back in October of 2016, one of my favorite tarantulas in my collection. And in that case, I was able to recognize there was like a plug, almost in a hard plug in the vent area. I was able to use, I basically used a Q-tip or a cotton swab, moistened it down with warm water, rubbed it over the area, cleaned away as much of the stool as I could. And remember at this point, I really didn't have to do anything to calm her down because she was really in bad shape. Once I got that going and loosened it up, I took a pair of tweezers and kind of worked at that plug. And when the plug came out, all the poo came out. But unfortunately at that point, again, she was already too, too far gone. So and fortunately, once they get to this point, the best you can do, and I've heard of, I think, two cases where somebody, one case, I believe it was a P. Metallica. They got the plug out, the poo came out, the spider started eating again, it was doing fine again, but I believe in that case, it got plugged again. And then there was another one where supposedly, I want to say it was a Brachypelma species, don't hold me this. I know there was two cases when I was looking this up where it sounded like they turned it around. Where the spider did seem impacted, all the poo came out, the spider made a recovery. But it seems like most cases, by the time we get to the point where we're identifying the problem, it's kind of too late. So then the question becomes, how do we prevent this? It sounds horrible. How do we prevent it? Or what causes it? And that's where it gets tricky because I've heard a lot of different things thrown out there for what might cause it. I do believe there's a couple that stand out as realistic possibilities. So the ones that I think make the most sense, one, a spider being kept too dry. If you have a spider that's kept too dry, a dry environment, especially a moisture-dependent species, we know that that can cause molt issues. We'll get to that in a moment. But also the thought is that if the spider doesn't have access to water, that could cause issues. Now, whether or not that's just kind of applying what happens to humans, the spiders, you get a person that's not getting enough to drink, whatever, I don't know. It does sound like it could be a possibility, and I have seen some instances where people have had spiders that 
do show signs of impaction. It does look like an impaction, and it's a species that does benefit from a more moist environment. And then when you see pictures of the enclosure, it's a bone-dry enclosure with no water dish. So that one seems like it could be a possibility. I know with my Parvulus, I did keep her on the dry. I kept her dry, and with a water dish, I would think she could get a drink when she wanted to. I don't know if that was the case. The thing with mine is she had just had a molt. And with the molt, there had been a little abdominal skin stuck on her that I really didn't think that much about. I took a little moist brush with some water on it and just got it off. But that is the other cause that seems like it could be a major cause of it is there is a problem with the molt. That something happens with the molt where either the vent, anal vent area is malformed or it's fused shut or it doesn't form correctly. And then you get a situation where they are not able to evacuate their bowels. And I have heard several instances of folks that told me the spider, they noticed the signs of impaction after a semi-recent molt, meaning the spider molted, ate several times, drank a bunch, and all of a sudden they're having this issue. So that would point to maybe something going wrong with the molt. Makes a lot of sense. Other things I've heard offered as possible causes, and I don't I don't know how much I believe any of these, but I'll mention them because they're worth mentioning. An internal injury from a fall. Some people have said there's been situations where the spider has fallen. There might have been internal damage that screwed up their ability to digest the food and, and create the waste. That could do it. Sediments in the water dish doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever because the mouth, I've heard this thrown around a couple times, their mouth parts are such strong filters. They can suck water directly out of substrate and not get any dirt in their mouth. So that's ridiculous. I've heard feeding them certain things, a dubia diet. I think people have, look at, what ends up happening is we look at other animals. So we look at the fact, I believe, with dubia fed to certain reptiles and lizards, it can cause impaction in them. So people just went, oh, it can work in lizards and reptiles. It can also be the cause in spiders. The problem with that is the reason why it happens with reptiles is they're eating the whole thing, if I'm not mistaken, and you have the exoskeleton that's getting caught up in there. With tarantulas, they, they basically mash it all up and suck all the moisture out. So again, it doesn't happen. Overfeeding is one I've heard. And again, I kind of hear this from people that tend to be, you know, that harp on the whole overfeeding tarantula thing. You shouldn't overfeed them. So I'm not sure it could cause part of the problem, I guess. If you have a spider that's having some issues and you're feeding the heck out of it and it's fattening up too quick, I guess, but I haven't seen, I don't know, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that points to that. I know with my parvulus, it wasn't overfeeding and it just molted and eaten a few times. I was feeding it like every couple of weeks, a few crickets. It didn't have a chance to get all fat. But I have noticed with other folks, I think what ends up happening is part of the problem with this is they the reason why their abdomen has become so distended so quickly is they're filled with poo. And I think people look at that and go, oh, that spider's way too fat. You overfed it. No, it's way too fat because it hasn't been able to evacuate the waste that's inside of it. So I do think this, this is something I'm hearing more and more about and seeing. It's not like the DKS where you look at the video and go, that's honestly just normal spider movie. This is something where I've seen the evidence of the, the spinnerets, the poo caked on, the giant bloated abdomen, all the signs of it. I think it's just, again, I don't think it's happening more often. I think we're recognizing it more often. Where in the past, the spider would die. You go, I don't get it. It was nice and fat. I thought it was, I can't tell you how many times in the past you'd hear people say, I don't get it. My spider was super fat. I thought it was going to molt and it just died on me. And then you go back and look at it and go, holy crap, that might have been it. So yes, impaction is a really, Real, it's it's a real thing. I don't think it's over overly common. I think sometimes it can be prevented just by keeping the spider correctly. I mean, again, if talking about keeping them incorrectly, not giving them moisture and such. If you have a spider that's moisture dependent and you don't give it the moisture it needs, you can have those molt issues. You can have an issue where they don't molt correctly. And then you, again, sometimes it's losing a leg. Sometimes it's skin stuck on. Sometimes it leaves them plugged up and unable to go to the bathroom. So I do think there's, if you look at the cause of it, I think there are, it's not that common. I think preventive measures are just making sure that your tarantulas are kept correctly or well hydrated. And hopefully you don't experience it. But again, as far as how to the fix it, or what remedies we have. I don't know if I mentioned also. Just double, make sure I'm covering this completely. Clean its anus with warm water and cotton swabs. You take a little Q-tip. Obviously, self-explanatory. Dip it in the water. Try to loosen everything up. I've heard some people say that if you rub glycerin around the anus, 
that that can help if it's visibly plugged. It can help loosen the obstruction that would allow the tea to defecate. Use a small syringe to run gently run warm water over the area. Again, this is the thought process is if there is a hard obstruction in there, it will loosen it up. And then finally, and this is only to be attempted as a last resort, and it usually doesn't end well, you may try to carefully pierce or remove the obstruction or plug with tweezers or a toothpick. And this should only be attempted if the tip, if you can see, like in my case, you could see the tip of the plug and the animal's in dire straits, but just know there's probably a very good chance your spider is not going to survive the process. So unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, it doesn't seem to be a common problem, but it is something we face in the hobby and it is something that we always kind of worry about. So we want to cover it here. And it's funny because doing this podcast, one of the reasons I don't like doing these is because as soon as I do this podcast and put it up, I'm going to get a bunch of people that think their spider is suffering from one of these things. I always feel bad doing it because a lot of people have never heard of this stuff before. So in a way, all of a sudden it opens their mind to, oh my gosh, there's so much more I can go wrong. And they start fixating on, I know I can remember reading about all this stuff back in the day and worrying that every tarantula that I had was having DKS or was constipated, just know that they're not particularly common. Now, speaking of boogeymen and the hobby and ones that aren't particularly common, but we all worry about, I tore, I was torn with mentioning this because again, every time we mention this particular topic, I get a lot of emails like, I think this is what my spider has. Nematodes. Uh, the good news is recently, and I'm not going to go too into depth in this because I'm hoping to revisit it later on when we have a little more information and because apparently there have been some experiments with ways to treat spiders that have these, but they were finally identified. I believe they were named after Jeff Daniels from Arachnophobia because Jeff Daniels, again, I think they should have been named after John Goodman's character because he was the one that actually went out there and was the spider. The, the I always joke with Billy when we watch that movie that that's her with the pest control guy. But the name of the species that was recently identified was... Tyrannobelis Jeff Danielsi, and it's named after obviously Jeff Daniels. But this has been a, a fear for years the nematode situation, a horrific thing. And basically, what happens is you see your spider and you notice that your spider may be walking on its tiptoes, it's not eating, its pedipalps are pulled up against its body. And one way that folks can check whether or not their spider has been infested by them is to kind of shake the container the spider's in. Most spiders, when their container is shaken, they will put their pedipalps on the ground and flatten out to steady themselves. But spiders that are legitimately infected by nematodes will not do this. They they will keep their pedipalps folded up. So basically what happens is you see that the spider's not eating anymore. It's not drinking anymore. It's on its tiptoes. It's acting a little weird, walking a little funny, not using its pedipalps. And then you examine the spider more closely and realize that its mouth parts are covered with a white slimy substance that if it's nematodes, if you put it under a microscope, you would find is filled with little worms. Sometimes people even see the little worms come in. It's repulsive. But anyway, what usually happens is these worms infest the mouth part area of the spider. They lose ability to use their fangs or cholericera. They, it freezes up their pedipalps and they basically starve to death. They, they die. And it's been a nightmare because we're not sure how they get them. We're not sure how they they spread or weren't sure how they were spread. And then there was always fear that if one of them in your collection had it, it could spread to another one. There was talks of forward flies carrying them, that the forward flies would get into the enclosures. They would carry the larva over to another spider, all this stuff. So it sounded horrific. And if you would go on in the day, arachnoboards, there were a couple threads on there that were just nightmares of people that would get an infestation of nematodes in their collection and it would kill the majority of their collection or a lot of their collection. So nobody, you see something like this, you're in full panic mode because you don't know where it came from or who it's going to go to and how many tarantulas it's going to kill. Now, the good news is this was much more common back in the day when we had a lot more wild caught specimens in the hobby. You'd hear a lot of instances of folks that would develop nematodes after bringing in a wild caught specimen into their collection. So it would come in off of them. The problem is we couldn't figure out how they spread, which was an issue. And then you have all types of hypotheses of how they get these terrible, terrible parasites that eventually kill them. So the good news is while studying them, the scientists figured out that it seems like they don't actually attack or get inside. The, the theory was they got in the spider's mouth parts, 
infected the spider and the spider basically was eaten from the inside out. Not true. Apparently what happens is they congregate around the mouth parts to feed on the bacteria that's there. As far as how they get them, after lots of experimentation, they found the only way they could infect the spider with them was through prey items. So through infecting crickets and roaches and then feeding these infected crickets and roaches to the spiders, that would infect the spider. So good news, bad news situation where it sounds like now we have an idea of how they could become infected. And that's kind of a good news, bad news situation because good news, now we we have a better idea of how these, they're not going to get it through water. They're not going to get it through a forward fly going from enclosure to enclosure. That's good news. That, that means this is containable, except for the fact that if they're coming from prey items, if you're like me and you have roach colonies and you buy whole boxes of crickets or whatnot, that's a scary proposition because that means you, if you got one spider that has it and it came from those feeders, then it means any spider in your collection could potentially be affected. So that's some scary stuff. But it doesn't seem, again, I don't think it's all that common in captive bred situations. It seems like it happens more with with wild caught ones, but that's not to say there couldn't be a situation where somebody has infected prey items. But it doesn't seem to happen all that often. I, I have to state that because... A lot of us read about these. The first time we ever read about nematodes, it was like, oh my gosh, it's, I'm done. Like, I remember being freaked out about it. I remember seeing one of my spiders once. It pooped on the the side of the enclosure and it went up and must have got some on its mouth. I'm like, oh my God, I've got nematodes. I'm, I was freaking out and end up it was poop. But it, not a very common issue. So let's calm a little ourselves a little bit there. And the good news is it is being studied. So they're studying how long it takes to infect them. They are, I've heard from pretty good sources that they are working on a way to treat them. There could be a way, something you could put on the spider, treat the spider with that will kill the nematodes around its mouth that would allow it to eat and drink again. I believe they've had some success with that. Hopefully we'll find out one way or another, you know, in the near future, what we can do if we have a situation where our spiders, you know, God forbid one of our spiders does show signs of being infected by nematodes. So bad news is a lot of times it's fatal. It's scary where if it's, if it does come from feeders, it means if you see it in one spider, you could have other spiders that it pops up in. They're not sure how long it takes total for the spider to end up dying from it. The good news is it's actually being studied by people that understand and appreciate nematodes and we could eventually have some type of resolution on how to treat our spiders once they get it so as far as prevention is concerned a tricky one i would say if you haven't brought new spiders into your home this would be the big thing if you've brought new spiders into your home recently or semi-recently and you're starting to see these pop up especially if it's on the spiders you just brought in then i would definitely quarantine those spiders and get them out of there for the time being i mean not that it shouldn't spread from spider to spider but just to be safe. And then the other thing is if you haven't brought spiders in, I would definitely look at the feeders. So if I had a roach colony and I hadn't brought in any spiders in quite some time and suddenly I'm getting nematodes, I would be looking at the roach colony as a culprit. If you're buying crickets from somewhere, I would look at the crickets. I would shift who I got crickets from. I would shift prey items, use different prey items. I would get rid of any that I was keeping in my house in fear that those might have it. If that's how they're brought in, then that's something we could at least keep them from infecting other spiders. So nematodes, scary, scary, scary stuff. But again, not as common as people like to think. And it's one of those deals where I, I think because of the ramifications of having a nematode infection, because of the fact that in the past, if one spider got it, next thing you know, and another spider got it, another spider got it, and it's fatal. That's about as scary as it gets. So had to cover that one here. Luckily, we've got some new information. This is something I couldn't have covered you know, last time I covered this topic. And as they don't actually infest the internal workings of the spider, it seems very promising that they could find some type of way to treat the, sp the outside of the spider to kill the nematodes off and allow the spider to thrive. So that's a good thing there. So, so moving on to what will probably be the last topic. Well, kind of, it's going to be kind of two in one, but bad molts, probably one of the more common things we see. And there's different degrees of bad molts. There's bad molts where the spider has a little skin stuck to its abdomen, maybe a leg partially stuck. And then there's the catastrophic ones like what happened to my P. Formosa 7, where she lost several of her legs, lost both of her pedipalps at one point. It was a, it was a mess. Luckily, it's the only really bad mole I've had, but they can happen. Now, how can they be prevented? I think right off the bat, making sure we're keeping the tarantulas correctly. I've seen a lot of situations with folks sending me pictures of spiders that had terrible molts, and then you look at the enclosures, and they're not set up right there. They give A lot of times, it, it, it's due to moisture-dependent species or species, smaller specimens that need some moisture, not having the moisture they need before they molt. Unfortunately, when your spider is like few, a few days from molting, and you decide to suddenly add a bunch of you know water into the enclosure, 
the tank, that's not good enough. They need it as that process starts, as they stop eating and start working to develop that exoskeleton underneath and they start pumping fluid in between the two layers of the exoskeleton so that they can separate easy and they can slide right out. They need that moisture ahead of time. They already need to have that. So if we start adding, I've heard people say, yep, my tarantula hasn't eaten in a month. I think it's in pre-mold. So I'm, I'm adding a bunch of moisture in. Well, that's great, but we got to make sure that it's kept properly all the way through. So I do think a lot of time, some, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but sometimes when you hear somebody that's new to the hobby it's had a problem with the molt. And you go back and you look at the husbandry. There's an issue with it not being kept moist enough. No water dish. Uh, Moisture-dependent species that doesn't have enough moisture. That's easily remedied. Sometimes you just have bad molts. Unfortunately, it's it's a very strenuous process for the spider. And sometimes things don't go well. So I think people, I, I again, I put the video up featuring seven. And the good news is I think people saw that they can come back from it, which is great. The bad news is I think I gave people something else to worry about. Because I can't tell you how many folks, like I have three tarantulas. I can't imagine anything like this happening to it. I don't even want to get more because I'm afraid they're going to die from a bad molt. And it doesn't happen all that often. Again, I've had hundreds. And I've had a few here and there where the little skin gets stuck to it or they might have a leg that gets a little messed up in it but most most of the time it's not an issue so in the case of seven i'm not sure what happened there she had the moisture she had the water dish she had it just went poorly but what do you do when it goes poorly let's do the the small ones first every once in a while you have a situation where people will the spider will molt and the carapace will be kind of still stuck on the back and maybe this abdominal skin easy remedy if the spider, not don't do this with the spider, still super soft. Let me make that very, very clear. It's actually easier when the spider's hardened up a bit. Don't fiddle with the spider right after molt. But once it's hardened up a little bit, you take a, a soft brush, you put some warm water on it, and you just brush it over. If it's the abdominal skin, you brush it over the abdominal skin. If it's the carapace, try to get a little so it goes in between the new carapace and the old carapace. And what happens is, especially with the abdominal skin, it loosens it up a little bit, and then as it dries, it kind of shrinks, and it ends up usually falling off no problem. I've had it come right off with the brush. I've had it, I've moistened it down a couple times, had it just fall off on its own. Same thing with the carapace, not a big deal. If a leg is stuck, you do not need to pop the leg off usually because what will happen is if it's inhibiting the spider's ability, its mobility, its ability to move and hunt, it will usually pop a leg off itself. I have, if you have a situation where the spider molts and the there's pieces of the molt, like sometimes what happens is it's almost like taking a sock off and the sock gets stuck on the end of your foot as you're pulling it off. So half the, most of the socks off, but it's still kind of stuck. Sometimes you get a situation where their feet are kind of stuck or one of the legs is kind of stuck and it's holding on to some of the extra exoskeleton, the old exoskeleton, and it's dragging the exoskeleton around, then what you do is get a very small pair of scissors. Sometimes you use a little nail clipping scissors or just little sewing scissors. And you go in there and you trim away as carefully as possible as much of that old exoskeleton as you can. Usually it's just a couple snips and the rest of it comes off. And there may be some still stuck on the leg. Don't worry about it. If, if Again, if the leg's giving it problems, it'll take the leg off itself. It, there's no need. I, unfortunately, after the seventh thing, and I mentioned I had to take a couple of legs off. Everybody's like, should I do this to my spider? It's running around. I think one of its legs. No, leave them alone. So usually that's, I would say probably, I don't know, 80, 90% of the issues I hear about molting, just little things caught here and there. Some of the molt off. If it's a really bad molt, like seven, what I started with, like if it's one, a lot of legs are caught. You want to get it as soon as possible. Once they have a certain amount of time to molt, where those fluids have been pumped in there, where they can get out of there. When that, when they start drying up, when that old exoskeleton starts drying up, you're done. That's it. That thing's going to dry up. It's going to seize onto the new exoskeleton. They're going to, basically, you're going to end up with contorted limbs. That's kind of what happened with seven, unfortunately. So my first trick was to go in and try to trim away. A lot of the molt was stuck to it. I trimmed away as much of the molt as possible. The second one, I realized that she had gotten her clarissa free, but her pedipalps were stuck. As it was trying to hold on to the molt, she actually popped off the pedipalps on her own. So basically, if you have to pop a leg off, if they're caught and it needs to go, you want to grip it close to where it attaches to one of the joints, usually like right next to the body. They will, you'll see, it's not like you're plucking them off. They basically are able to pop it off on their own and then it closes up. You'll see there'll be a little hemolymph, but it shouldn't be pouring out. It should close. They're actually able to close off those areas. They can lose legs and close off those areas if it happens at the right spot. And if it happens quickly, if you're sitting there tugging on it and not so much. So usually what I did with, with uh, seven or what I did with seven is just grabbed with the tongs very close to where the joint was where I wanted it to go. And she just did the work and it popped right off. And then as far as stopping bleeding. So this goes with wounds as well. So we're going to kind of segue into the wound part. Do not break out the super glue. I've had people tell me they, you know, oh, my spider lost legs, so I took some super glue and put it on it. Don't do that. 
Um, here's the deal. A real bad situation, a really bad situation where a spider's fallen, maybe smashed open its abdomen, where it's already on its way out and probably doesn't have a chance to live. Desperate situation. Then maybe you break out the super glue and go for broke and close it up and at least give the spider an opportunity to try to heal. The problem with the super glue, and this doesn't really apply as much to one that has just molted, but trying to fix spiders that have molted a while ago. The problem is, is that molted, these new exoskeleton could be developing underneath. And if they get a really bad wound and you superglue it, you could be also supergluing the area that would be developing the new exoskeleton. So now you've actually caused an issue with the next molt because of that area. So you want to be very, very careful with that. I don't usually, again, unless it's a dire situation where the spider fell, I've heard people like spider fell and split its abdomen. Usually the spider's dead anyway. They bleed out very quickly from that. But there's been situations where people have used it like split in there. They've had a bad wound that wouldn't stop bleeding. They've used a little super glue. I like using cornstarch. You take cornstarch and you put it on a little Q-tip, you know, you kind of load it really on there and you stick it right against the area. It helps the blood clot. Now, for like leg, that's what I would encourage people to do if you have to pop a leg off. That's what I did in the situation of seven. I went in with some cornstarch on Q-tip and each one of those little stumps, it was three of them. One, well, first time it was the pedipalps. Both pedipalps hit them both up. And then the second bad molt, she lost three legs on her right side. And I went through, hit those three spots with it. If there's a little spot of bleeding in your spider, use the cornstarch. Use It's the better thing to use not the super glue unless it's like last resort because again you don't want a situation where you glue the spider up and now you have a problem next time with the mold i know with seven when she lost legs they were at a good spot where she was able to close it off and i put that cornstarch out there there was like no bleeding after the fact which is great so with molts try to figure out how bad of a molt problem it is and sometimes and let's throw this out there as we already alluded to with the impaction sometimes when you have molts Things go wrong, you don't recognize them. That can be an issue where the spider loses its sucking stomach, which leaves it unable to process the food it needs to. You have situations where it had a bad mole, and I know with the parvulus, I think I mentioned, I thought it was just a little abdominal skin that was stuck on it, kind of around its spinnerets. I moistened it all up, but it was around the area where its anus was. There's a very good chance that there was some type of problem during the molt. So unfortunately, sometimes there are situations where the molt looks like it went okay, just had like a couple little issues and then we find out later there were more major issues that were undetected but a lot of times it's it's, it's a wake-up call i found even with myself there's a, things got a little too dry I, I have one that like all right a little stuck to its abdomen there that one of the legs is caught maybe i gotta make sure i up the amount of moisture in the enclosure make sure they don't obviously keep the water dish full i think sometimes it can be a wake-up call to us that hey we're not keeping this thing correctly and that's why i pointed alluded to in the beginning where a lot of times when i get contacted with people that have had a bad molt when you look at the husbandry there's something that's lacking usually the moisture in the moisture department so i do think in many cases it can be preventable but again it is a very traumatic experience for the spider there are things that can go wrong with it and sometimes it's just out of our control which is sad because again this is all the biggest issue with spiders the biggest issue i have with spiders is the fact that it's so difficult to tell when something's wrong and sometimes by the time something is wrong it's too late like we talked about in Paxham, we talked about dks with those sometimes by the time you see the symptoms it's already too late and that's that's a tough pill to swallow we love our animals we want to make sure you know if there's preventative medicine or preventative measures we could take we want to make sure that we can take them and give our animals the best chance to live healthy lives but it can be difficult sometimes so i do think with molts there are cases sometimes where they go bad there's the wet molt where the skin underneath and i don't think i've, I've never experienced one of these as far as i know but i've seen pictures of them where basically the exoskeleton underneath isn't properly formed and the spider comes out it's a nightmare a lot of times they don't survive from that one and i've seen situations where people have found it necessary to euthanize because the spider is such a mess it's a judgment call. If you think you can save your spider, they are amazing in terms of fixing themselves when something goes wrong. Watching what Seven went through, losing the two pedipalps, having the legs that are all deformed, then going through the next one, losing three legs, and going through the next one, growing the th three of the legs back, unfortunately losing the fourth leg on that side, which was probably bad to begin with, but watching her slowly come back for this, it's really amazing to see how resilient, how strong they are, and how much they can correct themselves. So if you have a situation where something doesn't go quite right, 
decide, is there something I could have done husbandry-wise to prevent this? If you're looking at it going, hey, you know what? My T-stermy had a bad molt. It's a juvenile. I let things dry out for a little bit. I got to be a little more conscious of that. That's good. You can fix that and hopefully it has a good molt next time. Fingers crossed for you. I think that's the way to look at it. It's like, all right, we saved it this time, but what can we do to improve things? And unfortunately, sometimes there's going to be situations where you're left kind of shrugging, like, I don't know what went wrong. And I've had that happen with seven. That first molt, never saw that coming, never had knock on wood, never had an issue with any of my piezolithia molting. That was the first time I had, a, that was the first cataclysmic molt I've ever had with any of my tarantulas. So that's a tough one to deal with. So I think that about covers the ones I planned on covering today. This went a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But again, I wanted to revisit it because there have been, especially in the realm of nematodes, there's been some huge advances as far as understanding. They have a name now and understanding what causes that because that's been the big, again, that's been the boogeyman of the hobby for quite some time. And I think some of the last time I covered mites, I had only had one experience with them. I didn't know the trick of putting the rotten prey items in there and stuff. That's a great trick. Whoever came up with that, God bless you. It's awesome. And so I think it's good to revisit these every once in a while. Plus, I've been getting a lot of things lately with bad molts and people thinking their tarantulas have DKS and things of that nature. So good to kind of cover what we know. And if you have techniques for some of these things, things that work for you, please chime in. If you've gone through people hearing that people have gotten through this stuff is great. So if you've done something that got you through mites or you had a bad mold that the spider went through, people, let's share some positive stories. That's always great for people to hear that, hey, my spider does have a chance. Because I think what happens is the first time, especially the first time we experience any of these, it's a lot of doom and gloom. We figure our spider is going to be dead. But to hear that in some of these instances, it could be perfectly fine. We need information like that out there. So that about does it for this one. Uh, YouTube, what did I post this week? Oh, some Formictopus stuff. I had six species of Formictopus that I did some rehousings with. Unfortunately, nothing really, only one of them kind of showing some cool adult colors, most of them kind of the bluish slings or whatever, but I've been trying to track some of the new quote-unquote species we have in the hobby that are probably just different regional variants of other established species we already have. Who knows? But anyway, they're, if they're different colors than the ones I have, I'm okay with it. But that video is up, and then I'm working on a piece of Etheria video. It'll probably be my last big video of the summer before I go back to school. I have more time for the editing of those videos during the summer when I'm off, it becomes a little more difficult when I'm at work because then we're, you know, full board doing work stuff, but got that one coming up soon. That will do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe. We'll catch you all next time.